My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Katie Cook. Katie is an MA in Cultural Studies and Psychology and a PhD in Interdisciplinary Studies. And the reason why we are here talking to her today is because she just published a fantastic book that I finished reading two days ago titled The Psychology of Silicon Valley, Ethical Threats and Emotional Unintelligence in the Tech Industry. So, Katie, welcome to Singularity FM. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So, I've been reading your book and... Uh, I'm loving it, to, to tell you the truth. I absolutely love it. But before we get to the book, I want to find out a little bit of who you are and why you decided to write that book. So the book covers three themes, broadly speaking, psychology, ethics, and technology. So which one of the three was your first love when you were little, maybe? Um, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. That's really, really nice of you to say. I, I love hearing that people have enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed writing it, so it's it's lovely to hear that. Um, you know, I think the first thing that actually caught my attention when I started into this whole world was the mental health impacts of tech and kind of the ethics around um, how technology was designed and how it affected people and relationships and attention and cognition and all these things. And that was my kind of first window into, into this world. And obviously that's one of the areas where there's kind of the most research, right? Like the mental health effects of tech has, has just exploded and it's, it's huge. Um, but but when you're really young, perhaps, before you got to that professional level where you professionally had interest in the topic or, or academically started developing interest, even before that, simply as a passion, what brought you to be interested in psychology, to do a degree in psychology, or was it interest in technology even before that? And where's the ethics coming in? That's where I'm trying to get to here, the root of those passions of yours, which eventually culminate in this book that I just finished reading. Sure. That's a great question. So I, I, from the time I was a little kid, all I wanted to do in my mind was help people. And I didn't know exactly what that looked like or what that meant. Um, so I wanted to be a doctor at first because that was kind of the most, you know, easy, basic way I could think of in my, my young brain of, of helping people. Um, and I went to school for that. I was pre-med in college thinking that that's what I would do. And it became quite apparent that that's not what I loved. And so I became, I was tutoring writing anyway. I've always loved writing. And I switched to an English degree because I really love narratives and, and people and people's stories. And I became a counselor after that, thinking maybe that was my my way to help people. Uh, it quickly became apparent that I was a little too, perhaps, empathetic for that. And I, I <laughs> spent a lot of time very, very sad and, and in tears um, after my session. So um, that didn't seem like quite the right fit. I then kind of started thinking about bridging some, some of my interests. So I'd always loved narratives. I My last class in college was a social psychology class. And I thought, oh my gosh, how did I miss this? Like, when did I, I how did I not get the memo that, that this existed and, and I could do this as a job? And so 
I ended up going back to school for my second master's, um, looking at issues in modern culture and kind of studying modernism and, and how humans respond to, to difficult situations, basically. And then my PhD was, again, interdisciplinary and on the psychology of, of progress, really, and how, um, and how human beings get from, from a point that's quite difficult um, and work through that to something that's hopefully more positive. And then with the book, um, I became interested in tech, um, as I mentioned, about, about nine years ago. And I started applying some of those ideas to, to the tech industry and looking at how um, this, the psychology of the industry was influencing its ethics or, or lack thereof sometimes. And I became really interested in the, the social changes and changes to institutions. And I wanted to see if there was anything that, um, that psychology could contribute or that I could contribute or be of service in, in that way. So that's kind of, that's the, the whistle-stop tour. Of, of how I got here. <laughs> Fantastic. And the psychology of progress is a very interesting topic indeed. And I believe that we actually need a lot more research and publications on that topic, especially given all the fundamental changes that we're observing in the world of technology. And unfortunately, the research on the psychological effects of those changes is lagging grossly behind probably by decades. And that may be a luxury we might not be able to afford. Yeah, I agree. It's very difficult to um, to kind of marry up the study of social progress with with technological progress because obviously one is so much more um, just fast than the other. Basically, right? Social progress is is iterative and it takes a, a long time to catch up. So it's definitely operating at a loss, I think. But there are definitely some things we can do, to my mind. And I've heard so a lot more people talking about it, which is heartening to me. Right. When I started. 10 years ago, and I started talking about ethics in technology. Uh, one of my best friends, he's a medical engineer. Well, he's an engineer who works in the medical field. He uh, provides support to the MRI machines in uh, all of Ontario. And sometimes he flies all over Canada. And he always used to tell me, well, you philosophers, you're all bullshitters, because at the end of the day, there's nothing you have to show for it. Whereas, you see, if I don't go to work and if I don't do my job, people can't get their medical tests. So what I do makes a real effect on the world. And what you do is just creating those piles in the sky, those, you know, air castles. And, you know, my work is black and white. There's no ethics in it. It's all engineering. It's pure one or zero. And it's very simple black and white thing. And now I think actually, and that was kind of often the attitude that I used to, to be greeted with when I go to talk somewhere about the importance of technology and uh, of ethics within technology, especially when it comes to human enhancement, AI, or what have you. And people used to look at me like I'm crazy, but in the last three or four years, I've, I've seen a sea of change in that. And now it's completely like there's so much work and research, and I'm so happy to see that. Yeah, same. I feel exactly the same. And I, I know what you mean about... Um about your friend and, and that kind of attitude. I, I interviewed probably hundreds of people for this book, 240 or 50 in the end. And the kind of, the distancing from other specialties and disciplines and kind of a, an exceptionalism within, within the tech community about, you know, that kind of, that kind of way of thinking or that kind of um, way of turning out products rather than, than ideas and, and kind of gray areas and stuff. There is kind of a, a separatism 
in tech that I think needs to be broken down. But we can we can talk about that later. Well, but but tell me a little bit more about perhaps here because it may be relevant. What's the kind of psychology? Because you're an expert in the field. What's the kind of psychology? behind this kind of reasoning that the world is really kind of so simple uh, uh, or clear cut, if you will, and that engineering and science are engineering and science and there's no space for philosophy or ethics in those and they're very clear cut and either zero or one. I mean, what's the psychology that that reveals? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's why I put the the cover of my book is is kind of binary um, ones I in the background. And, and that to me kind of does represent the psychology of, of a lot of people in the industry. And again, with social psychology, you do tend to have to generalize a little bit. And so you lose a little bit of nuance. And so sometimes when I, when I talk about these things, they, they risk sounding like generalizations, but some of the themes that came up um, for sure were a preference for kind of black and white um, solutions. And and I think the one of the problems with that is that you know it, humans love to think in in dualistic terms and in binaries, right? Like we love an either or choice, but it kind of precludes then a third choice or a fourth choice or a fifth choice, and and also then diminishes I think creativity in a way because you're not maybe thinking about other ways of doing something. And I think if there was you know this ties back to a lot of things, but if there was more diversity in tech, I think that would change. The situation a lot and not just I mean all kinds of diversity gender ethnicity um, different kinds of education so more humanities students um, I think would be a great um, area to try to improve and get more into the pipeline um, different backgrounds socioeconomic backgrounds it's it's also a an area of privilege really when you look at it right a lot of people come from very you know, Ivy League schools, privileged backgrounds there's not a lot of diversity in terms of the socioeconomic landscape especially founders. Um, so I think diversity would be one of the things I would um, prioritize that would go a long way because there is just this kind of overwhelming um, homogeny, I think, is the word that always comes to mind for me when I think about the psychology of, of the industry. And that can mean a lot of things and it's shaped by a lot of different things, but there's something very insular about it that I think it would be really valuable to try to try to move or shift a little bit in a different direction. An interesting case uh, or example of that was perhaps my last interviewee, um, Kathy O'Neill, who wrote this fantastic book, book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And she was talking how she started with ethics and philosophy, but because everything seemed to be so subjective and so uh, arguable all of the time, she basically sought, uh, sought refuge in math where she thought math is very clear, is absolutely objective, um, it's absolutely right or wrong, um, and it's kind of very safe and secure in that way. And then 20 years later, she was shocked to discover that actually, even though she was doing math, what she was doing could be called in some ways weapons of math destruction, and the damages had uh, highly sort of objective ethical uh, consequences to a lot of people all over the world. And so she ended up having this whole full circle by trying to run away from ethics, going into math as a refuge, and then eventually coming back into ethics and writing this book about weapons of mass destruction. 
So, I, I mean, is that not kind of like a, a sort of a psychological quest for safety and security? And, and especially if you're a nice person who don't want to be controversial and, and sort of, you know, rattle the boat or something like that? Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a really good point. She also has a wonderful TED Talk, by the way, that I absolutely love. She's so brilliant. She does. Um, um, yeah, I, I heard her kind of talk about that, um, that full circle. And interestingly, that's what kind of happened to me as well. I started out interested in, in psychology. I moved towards looking at more at impacts and the effects of what was going on. And then I circled back and ended up with psychology again, albeit of a different kind. Um, the psychology of the industry rather than the the psychological impacts of tech. But I think, you know, people seem to be, to my mind, kind of predisposed to one kind of thinking or another oftentimes. And there is something that is very comforting about numbers and about right answers. And I think perhaps I take it for granted because I've always loved, I mean, even things that don't have endings, right? Like my favorite books were always the ones that it either ended badly or had an ambiguous ending. I love <laughs> so much. She's my favorite author. Because who, who, sorry? Jean Reese. Oh, okay. I apologize. She wrote there a wonderful a... Um, series of books. I have a chapter coming out um, next year about, about one of her books. And they're kind of, they're really uncomfortable. And humans obviously hate to be uncomfortable. And one of the main, we have lots of tools to deal with this, but one of the main things is to to find things that fill in the holes, right, of, of our narratives and, and kind of patch things up so we don't have to think about where things might not align or where we might not be able to explain something. And, and science and math have obviously gotten really, and engineering have gotten really good at explaining so many things that we've, I think, elevated them to, to think that they can explain anything. And Yuval Harari talks about this a lot, I forget in which book, but um, you know, this kind of reliance on data and this datafication of the world, I think, comes at a huge cost, right? It comes at, you know, the cost of, of not knowing answers and not being comfortable with, with discomfort and with sitting with yourself in these big questions and with thinking that you can, you know, may, and maybe you can solve consciousness or, or figure out the meaning of life or purpose or love or all these things that as humans, we've, you know, strived to understand for so long, I think technologists sometimes think that that anything can be disrupted and anything can be solved with technical solutions and i my opinion is that is incorrect yeah and and speaking of being comfortable uh one thing that i learned in my sort of uh studies of ancient greek and roman philosophy is that you know people back then just like people today are more comfortable of having uh answers that they cannot question rather than having questions that they cannot answer. And I personally learned to be comfortable with not knowing and and being aware that I don't know and still being okay with it. Uh, and of course, this is probably one of the main lessons that Socrates taught us. And, and you know, it, it seems like people are very uncomfortable with that kind of status quo, if you will. Or it's not even a status quo, it's kind of like a flux, constant flux. Um, and, and one just example before we move on to your book that I can give you from my own personal experimentation in that field is uh, I'm currently writing a book called uh, Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future uh, and kind of connects with your narrative. And we're going to talk about the narrative because parts of my hidden agenda is to get insights from you that help me move on with the book because <laughs> you had some great insights in your own book. 
and so I run this test where I wrote like a 20-page summary of the book, and I published it in Basel in Switzerland alongside an art exhibit. And maybe a couple hundred people read the book. And then I got all this feedback, which is invaluable. And people loving it, uh, and they say that I was very good at explaining the importance of narrative, the history of narrative. And the last part of the book where I tell them that basically the narrative of the future cannot be written by a single nation, by a single species, by a single sex, uh, by a single race, from a single point of view. And it needs to be not a singularity, but, you know, uh, multipolar interspecies, intersex, uh, intercultural, probably interplanetary and intercivilizational narrative if we are to have peace among all those potential possibilities in the future, whether with artificial intelligences and enhanced humans here or aliens and stuff like that. And the major criticism that, that I got back from people was, but give us the narrative. And I was like, but guys, the whole point I'm doing this is to tell you I cannot write the narrative because I can do that, but that will be my narrative. It wouldn't be your narrative. And the whole point is for everyone to partake in this narrative, to have a mosaic of narratives that kind of like a puzzle fits together to create a meta narrative. And they're like, but give us the narrative. <laughs> so there's the pamphlet. <laughs> So, so that's one one of several reasons why I've been stuck on the book for the last couple of years. I mean, it's a huge question, isn't it? But I think you're I think you're exactly right. And if I could, if I could change anything, or if I had to to kind of answer for what I would love to see happen, it would be kind of a reharnessing of of the narrative from kind of the modern social and economic narrative. I guess I would say from a a very unified place. I would love it nothing, I would love nothing more than if our species could think of one another as one group. And not even that, but to extend it, as you said, out to, to planets and, and to animals and to nature and to, to think of everything as, as connected because it, it really, really is. Um, I think that sounds like a brilliant book. Well, it sounds like an idea probably. It's not it's not a book yet, so it's far from brilliant, given that it's not even a book. Uh, but but speaking of, of uh, other sentiences, and, and I, I was actually even arguing in the book that we should push beyond, we should push to include not merely sentiences, uh, 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 sapiences, but sentiences. In other words, any sentient being, even of a, of a varying degree of intelligence as compared to us, should be included and should he enjoy some kind of rights and privileges and protections, if you will. And one of the examples that I was giving was that, you know, today uh, our argument is basically we're sm smarter than you and therefore we can kill you and eat you and enslave you and throw you in production uh, animal farms or in the zoo or do medical experiments over you. And if one day we are in the context where we stop being the smartest species on the planet, whether in the context of artificial intelligence superseding us or whether in the context of, let's say, alien intelligence coming from space, the question then is why wouldn't they treat us with the same principle that we're treating the others right now? We're smarter than you, therefore we can do whatever the heck we want to do with you. And my argument was that 
we have to live the principle that we set the example of how we treat letter, lesser intelligences than us by our own behavior. So if we, and of course, there's no guarantee that that will be successful model for others, but at the very least, we can say we didn't do that ourselves. Yeah, I think that's really right. And you can see that even in interpersonal relationships and interactions as well. I think I, at some point I talk about in the book, um, the power paradox and this idea that when you get an elevated sense of power, your awareness and your empathy tend to decrease. It decreases kind of the neurological um, activation of those areas of your brain. And I think at, at a species level, that can be true as well. When you get really powerful and kind of being the highest on the food chain, you kind of lose sense of, of everything else that's going on and the fact that everything works together and it's an ecosystem and we all it all kind of supports each other and you can't disrupt. It's like a mobile, right? Like over a kid's crib, you can't disrupt one part without everything else falling out of out of place. And I think we've really lost um, touch with that. So that kind of mentality would be, as you, yeah, super helpful. Super, mm -hmm. super helpful. Very well. So, so it's time for us to jump into your book, sure. The Psychology of Silicon Valley, Ethical Threats and Emotional Unintelligence in the Tech Industry. So tell me about the title then. <laughs> first of all, or let, let me try and break it down into steps. So first of all, somebody would say the psychology of Silicon Valley. How do you do psychology of a whole geographical location or a whole industry like the tech industry, as opposed to, you know, doing a psychological analysis of a single individual? Sure. That's a really great question. I think um, a lot of people, I would say most people, when you think of psychologists, they think of sitting in a chair across from someone much like I'm doing here and telling them your problems and everybody cries and it's, it's, you know, emotionally releasing and, and you feel better maybe after. Um, and that's definitely, I think probably what the majority of psychologists do. I would guess I haven't actually seen the numbers, but I would guess that's probably a, a stereotype for a reason. Right. But then there are people, um, and I used to do that, but, um, there are people like me and other types of psychologists as well. So social psychologists study, um, the psychology of groups and kind of how groups interact. And it's similar to sociology or cultural anthropology, but kind of from a more psychological perspective. So you can do this with really any kind of group. So anything that involves people is kind of fair game for a social psychologist, which is nice, right? I have like all this, all this um, uh, data open to me and, and people of all sorts and shapes and sizes. So um there's, there are good examples of similar kind of um, books to what I have done. So there's one about the finance industry and Wall Street around the time of the crash. So there's an ethnography of, of finance and what the culture of that looked like. It's called. Liquid. I can see how that's kind of a pathological uh, case of examination. That should be yeah, like. <laughs> yeah, right. And unfortunately, I think it was written after the crash and like after 2008, but it's super interesting. And it's about kind of the culture and the mentalities and the norms and the, the behaviors of the people in that industry and why that mattered so much and, and what kind of impacts it has. So when, when I think about what I do or what I've been doing um, recently with the tech industry, that's kind of the, the approach that, that I come from is, well, what can we understand about, you know, the, not only the behaviors that we see, but also the root causes of those behaviors. So anything to do with how the industry views itself or, um, 
different levels of awareness about either itself or or its social you know impacts or uh, the myths that it subscribes to. I'm really into mythology. I always have been, and so that was a really um, fun chapter for me to write, just about the myths and the stories that kind of permeate the industry and because those structure our understanding of the world around us, right? And those can be, in the in an industry, it's basically kind of like PR stories that, that come out and kind mm-hmm. of try to shape um, our experience of what that industry is. And I think in the last few years, like, like you said earlier, um, there's been kind of a breakdown and an understanding that maybe those aren't actually accurate anymore, or maybe they never were and we just believed them. Um, so yeah, all sorts of fun things to look at. There's no, you know, one kind of, of model for doing this, which is freeing and nice, but... But but aren't you afraid that... Because he, my concern is this. Someone from Silicon Valley would say, okay, Katie is trying to do, quote, a psychological analysis of Silicon Valley. But when I go to work, I'm just thinking of the mentality of my friend, the engineer, and, and many of those people that, that you're lumping into Silicon Valley psychologists are software engineers. So they'll be like, look, when I write a piece of code, it's either right or wrong. It either works or it doesn't work. It's, quote, scientific. It's, quote, subjective. And it's, quote, impartial. Whether those are true or not. And last episode, I talked with Kate, uh, Kathy O'Neill uh, on the topic of whether that's actually impartial and, and, and objective. But they would say that they're scientific and that you're being, quote, unscientific. Because, quote, you just said there's a lot of freedom, there's uh, a bunch of approaches that you can use and things like that. How do you convince them to pay attention to you that that what you're doing is science or at least it's worth hearing? Sure. So, yeah, that's a good question. So there are different different types of of science. Uh, Psychology is usually kind of, at least the kind of, of work I do, is usually limited to doing kind of um, interviews, semi-structured interviews, and thematic analysis around those interviews. So there is data, there is science to back up every interview that I've done. But you're right, it is, um, it's very qualitative. And I think there's not a lot of, or maybe not as much credence given to, to qualitative research in the field. So I wouldn't say, I've never had anyone come up to me and say, you know, you don't, you don't do science, psychology is not <laughs> science. I've, I've had people say, you know, this is, this is a little this is a soft science and it's a little too mushy for me. And I don't really, I don't subscribe to this and that's totally fair. I'm not here to, you know, say that I'm right and and everyone else is wrong. Um, But I think there is value in finding themes across a group of people. Right. And we could do this with, you know, America right now and, and look at what's going on within the, the society and the culture and the ethos and the values and the, the mindsets of the American people. And I think that would be a really valuable piece of work. And the same way that I think Karen Ho's um, book on, on Wall Street was really valuable to understand what happened so, so that it you know doesn't happen again, A of all, and that that industry might be able to kind of self-correct a bit. And so the other thing to say, obviously, is that um, these aren't these things aren't true of everyone, right? I talked to plenty of engineers who had lots and lots of empathy I talked to, you know, plenty of people who had wonderful social skills and were very aware of the world around them and the social impacts of tech. And I think you see this too in things like, you know, walkouts at Google about um, yeah. the way employees are treated and, and retaliated against. You see it in 
um, all sorts of, I, there was a Facebook memo that, or letter that came out from, um, I believe about 12 um, black employees saying how difficult it was to work there. And so there is this, this standing up for kind of less, uh, more kind of psychological and cultural issues that arise within these companies. So I think lots of people do it really well. And I think in a lot of, in many cases, at least, um, at least from my research, it seemed to be in a lot of cases constellated around the leadership of the company. Um, I didn't speak to anyone at, at LinkedIn who had a negative experience of working there. Whereas, you know, it's a bit, by comparison, it's a very mature organization. Its average age is a lot higher than somewhere like, you know, Google or Facebook. And I think that has a lot to do with it. There are kind of subtle changes within the industry. So it is, it is a study of the industry. And also I have, um, which probably didn't make it into the book for, for space sake, but a lot of kind of information on the differences between individual companies within the industry. Mm -hmm. That will be fascinating. I don't know if we're going to have time for that, but that's a very interesting comparison and point between the age of uh, LinkedIn versus newer startups, especially something like Instagram, I would imagine, right? One of the newer players in the market. Uh, so, and I imagine Instagram would be even younger than let's say Google, um, I forget the ages off the top of my head, but the average age was about 31 across most kind of major tech companies. There's some exceptions like HP and IBM. I think their average right. age is about 39. And the average age of the American worker is 42. So when you think about 42 compared to 31, like you're losing out on a lot of, of wisdom and kind of hard-won lessons that, you know, people who are, have been around a little bit longer to to learn those things could bring. Especially if you spent your 30 years sitting behind a computer monitor and mostly being asocial in one way or another. Whether, you know, because you, you, you're you like on the scale somewhere with, let's say, mild Asperger's uh, or because you're a nerd or for whatever reason it may be the case. But I'm just trying to say that there is benefit in socializing yourself uh, and learning the world uh, without the mediation of the computer screen, I think. Yeah, and I think that's true not only for engineers and people who work in tech, but for the rest of us too, right? I notice the difference in myself when I am around a laptop or a phone more than more than normal and when I haven't talked to enough people. And I talked to a lot of engineers who had a really good grasp of how this affected them and they were very conscious of the fact that they needed to go out and not and not just sit for, for 12 hours. Like they needed to go get coffee. They needed to go talk to their coworkers. They needed to socialize because they actively felt those skills diminishing when they spent too much time um, usually coding. Okay, great. So I was just concerned with sort of the worst case scenario, if you will, just in case like somebody does that, because quite honestly, while it probably would be rare, it would not be completely unlikely or impossible in my view. Um, so the second part of the title or the subtitle um, ethical threats and emotional unintelligence. So let's break it into two parts. So what are the ethical threats in your opinion and where's the emotional unintelligence? Sure. Um, so I, I structured the book in such a way um, that the, the threats are kind of contained in a section on the impacts of tech. So the, oh gosh, I forget what the numbers are now, but there's three chapters and they look at the impacts of tech from kind of three high level areas. So one is about changes to kind of economic structures and, and inequality and employment and jobs and kind of more social um, 
really high level impacts to to those structures. Another is around misinformation, truth, um, effects on democracy, and and those kinds of things, denialism and filter bubbles and all that. Um, and the third is around um, kind of the human impacts and the effects on relationships and friendships and mental health, depression, anxiety, um, suicide, those kinds of things. So when I think about the ethics, I want to be um, usually very clear that there's a correlation between the psychology of the industry in a lot of cases and the things that that happen in the industry that we might want to correct, right? Some of the things that we see that we don't like that created this kind of dumpster fire of, of behaviors that we see. And in addition to that, you know, there's lots of things around, you know, workers' rights. And I think ethics and text tends to get usually discussed around AI. Like even if you do like a quick job search around ethics, it's usually around AI. And there's so many other, to my mind, things that go into um, to the ethics of tech, like the way people are treated within companies, um, the design of technology and those mental health impacts that we discussed, and just, you know, so many other things. Like the, the, the ethics of disruption. What does it mean to disrupt something? And are you ethically responsible when you do that? Do you, do you owe the world mm-hmm. something if you screw up an election or if you undermine the notion of truth and, you know, get a, a whole world out of whack with, with what are out of touch, sorry, with what is authentic and inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And so I think the ethical questions are a lot bigger than people often give them credit for. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's what I've been trying to, to bring to light for the past decade. Um, and I'm still failing probably after a decade. Um <laughs> And and what about the emotional unintelligence? What does that mean? Sure. Um, I'm not sure if it's a word. I, I thought about that the other day. I haven't even looked it up. Unintelligence might not be a word, but that phrase um, came from um, a conversation with, with one of my editors at um, Macmillan. And I think one of the key kind of thrusts of the book is that it's really difficult to have good ethics in a group that's kind of psychologically unhealthy in, in one way or another. And great point. thinking about, and there's lots of ways to look at emotional intelligence, right? So I use a particular kind of model from a, a guy called Daniel Goleman, who's really been doing this for decades and decades. Um, he has a book called Emotional and Intelligence. So I thought that was probably a good place to start. Um, and there's different facets of it. And I think the industry is really, you know, good at certain parts. So one of the facets of emotional intelligence is, is self-motivation. And I think the industry is amazingly motivated, right? It has big ideas. It's um, dedicated to problem solving. It has a profoundly strong work ethic. Um, so motivation, I don't think, is a problem. But when we think about the other elements, I think they kind of have varying and again, this comes down to, to individual organizations, but varying skill sets around things like empathy and awareness and, and social skills and emotional control. And sometimes that comes down to an individual. Sometimes that's a whole company. Sometimes it's kind of the industry itself. And I think to my mind, the biggest problem within that kind of construct is the lack of empathy, um, just to me. And I think the others are you know worth looking at and problematic as well, but the lack of empathy has always been what I have truly focused on and really wanted to make a change about. What do you mean when you say lack of empathy in the tech industry? What are the sort of uh, benchmarks or how does this come out in in sort of behavior 
or actions or in technology or in applications or what have you? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So, you know, we can look at really big examples. I think sometimes the best way to do this is to just look at, at things that have come out and whether or not they are empathetic or unempathetic kind of products or services. Um, so you can think about, you know, a horrific example like Theranos, which is maybe the most unempathetic, um, not not company, but um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, Business model where people come and pay you money to get their results. And in the end, you either give them faked results or you give them something that you didn't sort of get the results, but sort of outsource them. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and so people base their life or health decisions based on the results. Yeah. So you lack complete empathy in terms of like the the context within which they may have to be taking those decisions and the concerns and fears that they may have. And what you're trying to do is just push forward like a model or a, or or a, or an invention that doesn't even exist. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So the inability to kind of marry up what you you say you're doing and you your stated values and what you promise to do and oh this is going to benefit so many people with the fact that you know that it doesn't work and it's not going to benefit anyone in its current state, right? But you, you do it anyway, because you're compelled by, by other, um, other ideas of what's important. And I think that's probably one of the most kind of ugly and profound examples, but you can also see it in the way technology is designed, right? Like technology isn't designed to be the majority of it, um, to make people's lives better or, or healthier or improve them. There are some exceptions or health apps and things like that, but the majority of things are designed to engage you and to keep you on them as much as possible. And that's a, that's not a, a happenstance. That is a design decision. Um, so I think there's a lot of lack of empathy in, in terms of the, the way we, you know, interact with technology and spend our time. Um, I don't know if Alex Stamos, who is the CSO of Facebook, um, he gave this whole keynote address at Black Hat a couple of years ago about right, how important right empathy is. And I'm not sure what the reaction was. I wasn't there. I saw it on, um, on a video, but it, it seemed like a plea to me almost that he recognized that there was just this, this desert of empathy and this void that needed to be filled. And I've, I've heard a few people talk about it since then. And I think, you know, it's not something that you can maybe prove. I did ask people what their values were, um, what values they associated to the tech industry, what values they thought would make the world a better place. Um, empathy never came up as a value that was associated with the tech industry ever, although it did come up in the other two categories. Um, so I think it's profound. It's important to people. It's just not necessarily something that's um, acted upon in the industry very often. And I think that's usually problematic. But that's good enough evidence for me. If, let's say, you do, you do 240 people survey as you mentioned uh, a number, and I, I don't know if that's uh, correct or not in terms of number, but, and that word or that value empathy never even like makes it on the radar, then clearly it's not a priority and it's not anywhere up on the people's scale there of priority lists. And therefore it it's unlikely to find itself into the products that they design and produce. Yeah. That that to me is straightforward logical reasoning, right? If you don't even mention something, right? Like it's not going to figure anywhere in your life uh, as an important thing. Um, 
But I want to grab another point that you mentioned before that about um, when we were discussing about emotional unintelligence and how, because that's a very interesting insight that only occurred to me now, like in, in how profound it is when you mentioned it. Um, as emotional intelligence is a foundation for ethical behavior and how if you lack emotional intelligence, you're kind of a lot more unstable psychologically or unable to 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 make those ethical choices uh, uh, properly. Tell me more about that and and where is that sort of lack of stability or originating from? You, you think in, in Silicon Valley, because in, I was thinking about it in personal sense here. Um, and I, I would say the, the source of my emotional stability is my wife, probably and my relationship with her. And that then provides this kind of luxury for me to, to be uh, emotionally stable and, and confident enough that I can make ethical choices which come at a price, but I believe are the right choice uh, for the medium and the long term, even though in the short term they may be very costly to me. Uh, because I come from this kind of position of emotional strength, if you will, right? And, and so how is that playing into Silicon Valley? I, I'm curious. Yeah, that's a really good question. So to me, and I guess a lot of this sometimes is personal and it's subjective as well, right? I think awareness and emotional intelligence and empathy, I think those are ethical acts to me, right? I, I feel more ethical when I act empathetically towards other people and when I'm aware of the problems in the world around me. So when I exercise those types of um, skills, I feel like I tend to act in a more ethical way and in terms of my understanding of what is ethical. And I think you have a better chance of of understanding ethics and, and values and problems of, of behavior if you're in tune with those kind of emotional, more emotional constructs. Um, so I think a lot of it, so I think there's a few things going on. I think there is a lot of focus on external, on the external and, and the outer and predominantly and increasingly less on kind of our inner worlds and our inner experience and Success is measured in dollars, in IPOs. Yeah, exactly. And also in, you know, you know, likes or you know, launching Followers. a rocket in space or, yeah, exactly. Like everything. Subscribers, clients <laughs> and all those kinds of things. Drones, oh my. Yeah, like there's so much going on out there and there's so much stimuli. And I think we get, you know, told that those things are important and society kind of um, reinforces those ideas a lot of the time, not just tech, like all of kind of the kind of Western consumerist culture. And when that happens, I think there's a kind of diminution of, of the inner. And I think a lot of, you know, that affects a lot of things that affects our awareness of ourselves, our ability to be with ourselves, our ability to think about emotions and handle emotions and be uncomfortable. Like we were talking about earlier we lose a lot of skills when we don't prioritize the inner. And I think kind of my job as a, as a psychologist, either clinically working with people or working, um, looking at societies, I think part of my job and, and where I see where I can be of service is trying to make um, industries or people more aware of, of these ideas and 
to try to at least empathy, there's different kinds of empathy and some of it is more innate and some of it you can learn. So, um, and there's arguments about whether or not empathy, you know, can be too much and you can, it can be not a good thing. Um, but I think, you know, you need at least some in order to think about other people and think about how what you're doing affects those people. And without those skill sets, I think you're, you're just prone to miss so much, especially when you combine it with these myths that kind of inundate the industry about, you know, tech can solve any problem and we're, you know, very exceptional here. And there's, you know, we're making the world a better place. And all these, these ideas kind of constellate and, and back up your your notion that you're doing the right thing and we all believe we're doing the right thing right but um it's it's good to be open to other ways of doing things as well i think and emotional intelligence i think is one of one of the things that won't solve everything of course in tech but i think it would help a lot i really do well let me tell you and that that will be kind of a controversial speculation well not fully a speculation perhaps on my point of view but here's what, I, what the image i had in my mind when you mentioned the words emotional and intelligence. I was thinking of Mark Zuckerberg in the dorm, not being able to find a girlfriend, first year freshman in college, with a bunch of other nerds like him who are totally asocial. So what do they come up with? The Facebook that allows to rank the looks of other girls, their colleagues, that they could probably never get a date with. And so at the outset, at the very inception of this app, we have a sort of a unfulfilled, hyper-masculine, um, highly sexualized, house, highly objectivized kind of a impetus behind the app, if you will, right? With clear lack of emotional intelligence, which is usually not very appealing to the opposite sex or to any potential partner. Uh, and then should we really be so surprised that things with Facebook have turned out to be, you know, hyper-masculine, sort of selfish, uh, objective, uh, uh, not objective, uh, but objectified, uh, materialistic and, and sort of ranking kind of a outcome with, with, with a very subjective or, 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 or maybe even demeaning um, way of prioritizing and organizing everything within itself. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. And I didn't get into this much in the book. I think I talked about maybe Google's um, inception and how Google was born and came to be and then how it quickly pivoted to a very different kind of, yeah. of output and priority. Um, but I think history um, is really, really important because when we think about individuals, our history is obviously foundational to how we're shaped as as human beings and that's true of groups as well so i do talk a bit about the history of of the bay area and kind of the, the wealth and the entrepreneurialism that kind of underpins its its history but i would have loved to have gotten into some of the things exactly like what you said which are the the more kind of nitty-gritty um origin stories of these companies i think it would be really really um really interesting you know looking at things like something like Airbnb and how that differs, which is really just meant to, to help and to solve a problem that they see in front of them, right? It differs from something like Facebook where it's, it's born in this very different, um, not incredibly moral uh, vacuum. And 
I think those differences do shape companies a lot. And it's really, really difficult to, to undo that. Culture takes a lot of years to, to change. And I think that culture in particular is one that, that concerns me. And I think uh, emotional intelligence is a great part of uh, uh, personal culture, which then becomes the foundation for an organizational culture. So if you are a bunch of nerds who, you know, sort of survive on pizza and writing code, lacking emotional intelligence, not being able to get a date, and then you create an app that spreads like wildfire all over the world and you're sort of one of the most powerful people in, in, the, in the world, suddenly you have to make decisions which are, require emotional intelligence, uh, knowledge of history, knowledge of culture, have ethics and compassion for your users and, and the people in the world and all those things. And therefore, if you didn't have them when you started and you never had the chance or the desire to stop along the way to sort of catch up on those things, we shouldn't be really surprised that you're never exhibiting them even after you've gotten to be this billionaire. Yeah, I came across this idea a lot that um, there's there's nothing to be said for, you know, like finishing your education or for going to school and studying something, let alone like humanities, but like anything. Um, and that education isn't, isn't necessary to, to do these, these roles and create these companies. And there's definitely a flaw in that logic, I think, because education doesn't, I mean, it teaches you lots of things, but mostly it teaches you how to think and it teaches you how to get along with people. And it teaches you how to tolerate viewpoints that are different to your own, which culturally, we just have a huge problem with right now. Um, and I think when you don't, if you're at the head of an organization and you don't have those skills and you don't hire people and prioritize um, letting them direct some of that kind of cultural influence with those skills, I think you're, you're going to be at a huge loss. So there's um, kind of an one-man power dynamic going on and, and not just Facebook, but, you know, a lot of companies and a lack of um, diversity of, of perspectives and of, of skill sets. And I think it's worth noting that highly analytical people do have less empathy by, by in, in neurological research, right? If you're super duper analytical and not very emotional, the areas of your brain that are responsible for empathy are going to be less active, right? There's five areas that are responsible for those things, and they're just not going to fire as highly. You're going to have all these other areas that are doing cool things and, and firing off the charts, but you're just going to be less likely to have emotional intelligence, like empathy and self-awareness as a skill set. And so you need to bring those in. And I think the failure to do that um, just has profound consequences for this leadership. Not yeah, you, give some, great, you, you give some fantastic examples in your book with, for, for example, one interview of Mark Zuckerberg, where uh, the interviewer kept asking him about uh, what does he feel about this and what does he feel about that? And and he always would return to say, well, what I think is, and I think this and I think that. And so he never actually said what he, uh, or maybe he used twice the word I feel, but he used 20 sometimes the word uh, I think. Uh, and and so, yeah, that, that clearly is an impediment to, to sort of connecting with people via feeling rather than via logic or, or, or via thinking. Um, and that brings me, was it you in your book that I read a, a, 
an example of somebody who was saying how um, intelligence is a gift and therefore it's much easier because yeah, it's it's much okay hold on hold on it's easier to be intelligent in hold on intelligence is easier because it's a gift and compassion is always harder because it's a choice hmm. i don't think i said that but i really like that right because look you can be born intelligent you can be born naturally inclined to write code or to do math or to be a great engineer or even a great artist, a great musician, a great psychologist, what have you. But then making the choice, uh, using that with compassion to make a particular difference versus just for yourself or for your company, that's a choice. And the intelligence was given to you for nothing, more or less. And yes, you could have work to improve it with education and with training, etc. But then compassion comes on top of that as a choice, and therefore it's much harder than intelligence because it has to be earned, and it's also it requires much tougher effort and focus than simply to be smart. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases that's very true. There are definitely some people, I think, who are just born with those skills kind of inbuilt though, right? And there's a subset of the population, I think this is in the first chapter of my book, that just really does struggle with emotions. It, it's something that's very difficult for them. And it's 10% of the general population has this thing called alexithymia, where they just really, they don't understand emotions in the same way that probably you or I do, or the majority of people do. And that, um, that condition or that diagnosis is very common in people on the spectrum. It's about 50% of people who have autism also have alexithymia, which is probably why people with autism get you know, kind of called out as being unempathetic when that's not necessarily the case. Um, but some people definitely are either, you know, born very compassionate. And I think people tend to think and favor either, you know, feeling or thinking to one, one way or the other. And, that's that's fine and there's no kind of right or wrong way i think it's just that there does need to be diversity in the, in those ways of thinking and i think diversity of thought would be one of the most important things that the industry could embrace mm -hmm. well uh, let me talk to you about your thesis what's your book's thesis my book's thesis is that emotional intelligence is fundamental to having more ethical technology. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and beyond emotional intelligence, just kind of psychological health is another way of thinking about it. So you can think about, you know, the, the cultural um, differences between kind of um, certain tech companies that we could name and, and shame, and I don't think that's necessary, but um, there are definitely areas for improvement in the psychological health of the industry. And I think it's nothing, you know, to, to demean them about or to, to blame them for. I think a lot of these things are born in this kind of, you know, economic system that, that prioritizes, you know, output and shareholder value and, and economic returns and profit and not the health of workers or what consumers need or balancing, you know, our economic inequality. There's not a lot of focus on the things that I think make a society a lot better. There's a lot of focus on things that don't. And I think tech is kind of, unfortunately, the biggest and, and baddest example of that right now, at least in the US. So is your book, let me ask you, who is your book written for? Is it for 
people in Silicon Valley with the hope of listening to you or at least considering what you have to say and hopefully changing their behavior? Or is it for outsiders who would then put pressure on Silicon Valley to to sort of force that change, if you will? Hmm, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so my background is in research. Um, as you can tell, it's a very heavily researched book. Um, but I wanted it to, when I talked to my publishers about it, I really wanted it to be a crossover. So I wanted it to be well-researched and also really accessible. So it's being used in, in ethics classrooms across the, well, the world, I guess, but across the, the U.S. and a couple other places um, as kind of a textbook and, and some kind of case studies and stuff. Um, so it's used in classrooms. It's used for anyone who is even remotely interested in what's going on in the tech industry at kind of a higher level and wants a different way of looking at those problems. It might help explain what's going on in a more holistic kind of way, I think. So part of my frustration when I started researching this was that there are, we treat problems as if they're all distinct, right? Like we see workers' rights over here and we see design flaws here and we see, you know, whatever, inequality over here. And I think a lot of those things come from similar places, come from kind of similar impulses. And if we treat the impulses and the drives and the motivations that are leading to those behaviors and leading to those impacts, we might make a, a big difference if we can start to shift those in a meaningful way. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't, you know, do other stuff concurrently, like change laws and understandings of, of what monopolies mean now and different definitions of things. But I think it's really important to, to also work on the culture kind of from, from the inside. So I've had a few people from um, Silicon Valley read it and it, the response has actually been really, really nice and positive. So, um, so, so far it's been good. I'm sure there'll be some, you know, reactions, but. That's, that's fantastic. Okay. That's fantastic. And how would you measure whether you've been successful with this book or not? You know, I don't, so I don't make any money off the book. Like it's open access and I don't, you know, get paid. I don't keep track of sales. I don't really think. Right. Let me just interrupt you here for a second and say that was one of my other questions is, but we should probably talk about that because you've made that very brave and interesting choice to provide open access to people who can go and I would put the link um, in the article and download your book for free. Uh, the electronic version of it, right? Yeah, that would be great. Anyone who wants it, you are welcome to have it. Please, please enjoy. Thank you very much. I was one of those people, right? I, I did download the book for free and yeah, I read it right. and I loved it. And I hope many other people do. Uh, and you also deserve to be get paid for the book. So uh, if you, um, uh, people can buy the book also when they, if they want to do a, a hard copy of it. But the question here is why make such a brave choice on a brand new book? I mean, most people, especially young authors such as yourself, you know, we start off pretty broke and poor when we write our first books. So we are hoping we're going to make some money originally. And yet you took the brave decision and that was, I'm sure, economically costly to you to give away the electronic version for free as an open access. And I'm sure that wasn't too easy with your publisher either, by the way. So how, why, why go that route? Um, for, a, for a few reasons. It was, so I studied until I was 33. I was, I did college and then two masters and a PhD. I was in school until like almost my mid thirties. I'm 36 now. 
And I was always so grateful when I would come across open access books. It just made my life so much easier. Not only the the time saved from going to have to get, going to have to get it. And it was just, it was right there. And it was so, it felt like a really kind act from those authors. And I was always really grateful. So part of me always wanted to almost repay that in a way. Um, Another part is that I think there's so much bad information and and non-evidence-based information online that I really wanted to do my part to kind of combat that if I could in some way. Um, And then also, I guess the third part is my my values have never been aligned with with money and with you know being like rich. And I I don't I don't tend to care about that stuff too much. So. (laughs) Um, I really wanted people to read it, honestly. Like, I, it's more important to me to get these ideas out and to have a conversation about them and hope that they influence the culture, even if in a teeny, teeny, tiny way, than to, um, you know, be racking in the dough. And I'm not J.K. Rowling. Like, I don't think I'm going to, I would have gotten rich off this anyway. So, um, well, I don't know. It just felt like the right thing to do, I guess, is the simple answer. Fantastic. And so, how do we measure success then, going back to the previous? Question. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, I see things that I get really excited about. And my, I always think of success and, and progress really as small steps. I always measure things and look for tiny changes. And so when I see things start to shift, and I think you said earlier that you saw things start to shift about three or four years ago, right? Yeah. And I, that's exactly when I think things started to, to change as well. I think a lot of it had to do with kind of the Cambridge Analytica revelations and this big kind of bombshell about what was happening with our data. Um, and ever since then, I've just noticed so many little things kind of falling into place from my perspective. So even um, Twitter's things about political ads and, and getting rid of political ads on the the platform. I think that's a step in the right direction. And we can talk about whether there's better ways to do that, or if it's the perfect way or whatever. But I think that's a good move. I think that's a empathetic, you know, responsible, socially aware thing to do. And then it kind of kickstart Snapchat into, you know, fact checking political ads, and it has this knock on effect. So I start, I try to look at little things, I look at, um, at workers and, and laws that have been sorry, workers and, um, and walkouts and, uh, memos and kind of transparency around the issues within the organizations. I also look at um, things like laws that are coming into play, and obviously that's kind of slow to materialize, but it does give me hope, you know, and they're not always, you know, probably what all of us would think of as perfect, but they do start to move things in this direction. And having a conversation, you know, about this five, six years ago, people would look at me like I had six noses, and I just, I, I didn't get how no one got it. (laughs) And now it seems like everyone gets it. So to me, that's a huge marker of progress. Like the awareness piece, which is the first to my mind kind of um, need in terms of of what you need to progress. The awareness piece is is coming along. It is pretty much there in a lot of cases. And so I think the the part that comes next is kind of understanding it all and and integrating it in a meaningful way that helps us understand what we actually need rather than just, you know, freaking out and slapping band-aids on things and creating laws that, that aren't meaningful. Um, the, the wisdom piece, I think, comes next and the understanding. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the actual uh, uh, sort of uh, ethical threats, like specific ethical threats that, that, or damages 
that you list many of in the book. Give me a few examples just so that uh, we make this the impact of the tech industry more real for people who may have not turned on their TV in the last few years. But give me a few examples. Sure. Um, the one that always comes to mind for me is probably workers' rights. That's always my, my first one, the way people are treated in these companies. And a lot of these companies to me is a huge, huge problem. And I think kind of this bifurcation of, of jobs and, and putting people almost in a, in kind of a feudal system is starting to emerge. And that really, really bothers me. Um, so the gig economy and the lack of stability in work and the lack of, um, you know, vacation and, and, um, healthcare and, and all these things or health insurance, rather all these things that kind of come along with the way workers are treated. Um, you know, there's more contractors at Google than full-time employees. And by all accounts to be a contractor at Google is not very fun. You don't get treated nearly as well. Um, and I'm sure it's a cush job and it pays well, but people still need um, security and they still need to feel valued. And I think a lot of um, the jobs that are emerging both within kind of big companies and also from, from startups that rely on kind of a more um, gig economy business model don't necessarily provide a lot of that for people, don't provide the, the dignity of work that people psychologically need to feel like they... Um, have a purpose in life. But right? someone would good. say, look, look, Katie, uh, the average salary in Silicon Valley is uh, $250,000. Like those people are taken care of and they have the most amazing perks you can imagine, like uh, uh, maternity leave, uh, freeze your eggs if you want, like uh, 250 grand. That's like a quarter a million a year, uh, you know. Uh, and you have the rule, for example, in Google that, uh, what is it, 20% of the time you can work on a project of your own choosing, et cetera, et cetera. How is that not good enough? Yeah, no, it sounds great, right? Like kombucha bars and like unlimited vacation and all of the things that it sounds like are really enjoyable. And I think a lot of that is is kind of a narrative. And the, the pay is absolutely real. Like I'm not arguing. I think the average Google salary is like 240 a year or something like that. Um, not arguing that a lot of things about working at these companies are really, really good. Um, I'm thinking more, well, even people who do get paid well, let's think about them first. So even if, if you're a woman or if you're um, a marginalized group or person of color, whatever, you're going to have a very different experience working at, at a company like that. And a lot of people leave. There's a lot of turnover because the culture is so toxic because of this in-group, out-group bias that um, is created when, when one kind of dominant group um, is is in control basically and i think you know getting getting money and perks is is nice um but going every day to a, a work environment where you're discriminated against and harassed or you know sexualized or whatever it may be that doesn't necessarily make up for for the economic benefits so there's that piece even for the people who do make lots of money i'm thinking more about the people who don't so the people who you know, Amazon warehouse employees, right? Like Amazon, by all accounts, has pretty good diversity in terms of ethnicity until you realize that that diversity is because its warehouse workers are predominantly Hispanic or African-American or have higher rates um, in those categories. So I think the, the exploitation almost in some cases of people who are, you know, drivers or driver partners or whatever they call them um, is really, it's really horrible. 
you know, it's not, it's not a nice way to live. I've met so many drivers in the past four or five years since I started really researching this who have, have had abominable experiences who sleep on a mountainside in a tent because they can't afford their rent. Like this is not a sustainable way to prop up an industry and you can't, you can't do this for very long and you can't disrupt industries and, and put people out of work and, and manufacturing jobs and things like that without expecting some, some pretty serious consequences. So I think the, the lives of workers in a lot of respects, whether that's within the tech industry kind of peripheral to it or completely outside of it needs to be a serious, serious point of, you know, um, research and contention. And to be fair, Andrew Yang has a whole, very successful presidential campaign around this, you know, entire issue. So I think there is growing awareness about it. That's interesting that you mentioned Andrew Yang. I, I did an interview with somebody uh, a month or two ago, uh, where the hosts were one Republican and one Democrat. Um, and they couldn't agree on almost anything, but they did agree both on Andrew Yang. So that was very interesting for me to observe. And now you're mentioning him, him too, which is interesting to me. But I want to go back to to what you're just saying um, and and um, just mentioned that in your book you actually say that um, I mean you you give lots of specific examples how for example Amazon is a trillion dollar company how it it has been declaring tens of billions of profit for the last couple of years where it has paid zero uh, in terms of federal tax how I think the average uh, wage in, in Amazon warehouses was like $28,000 or something insane like that, and how people were forced to pee in bottles in order to meet their productivity goals, uh, and they weren't allowed to take any uh, breaks uh, for lunch or, or any kind of breaks, even washroom breaks for that matter, and how if and when they do get injured, when they do get injured for one reason or another, they don't even have like healthcare and medical insurance and uh, all kinds of things like that, but so 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 that's of course in a context again where Amazon is a trillion dollar company with tens of billions of profit every year and paying zero federal tax, but but someone who is on the outside may say, look, I'm not a worker in Amazon and I'm not a worker in Silicon Valley. I'm just a client. So all I care is that my prime delivery gets to my place on the next day. Uh, why should I care about Silicon Valley's, you know, unethical issues. Um, and why would that or how would that impact on me? Why is that relevant to my life? If say they work somewhere in the other end of the world, like in Europe, or let's say on the East Coast in the US or in Canada. Give me another example where, you know, what these companies do has a direct sort of um, uh, poses a direct ethical threat to my welfare or being? Sure. Um, I think it's important to point out first that not only did they not pay any federal taxes, they actually got a tax rebate in 2018. So they're actually getting money back from the Negative tax. Um, so beyond that, I think this, this elevation of corporations and, and of wealth and the kind of economic disparity within these corporations and more broadly in the U.S., I'm not sure people understand always how this affects them or how it affects society in a systemic way, right? So societies that are grossly unequal are less happy, less healthy, 
um, more prone to civic unrest. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing now, right? Like you see increases in suicides, you see a decrease in the average lifespan in America, um, and you see growing numbers of kind of democratic and uh, threats to democracy and and um, social institutions and things like that. Just to give you one example that you may be aware of, but uh, you, you don't mention in your book, Canadians and Americans are very close. Like we're not very different. We're in, in, in many ways, we're different in some subtle ways, but there's not such a fundamental difference. And we're kind of almost the same economy. And yet the funny uh, longevity fact is that Canadians live on average four years longer than Americans, which is a big, huge number, you know, four years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. And I would really be curious. I don't know what the the differences are in kind of inequality numbers and things like that, but America's is one of the most unequal kind of developed countries in the world, right? Like its inequality is off the charts. Whereas somewhere who had like say Germany, who has or Sweden, who has kind of less inequality tends to be a bit more stable and a bit happier. Not always, but like tends to be. And I think a lot of the things that you see kind of playing out um, in in our culture right now, potentially in, in Canada and America. And I lived in I lived in the UK for eight years, so I can confidently say there as well, um, is this is the effects of inequality um, disrupting kind of civic cohesion. And I think a lot of that is exacerbated by things like misinformation and and the kind of crisis of truth that we have online. Um, I think that will not get better anytime soon. And that is, inequality is what scares me most right now and kind of civic civic breakdown. And I am hopeful, but I think you also see it kind of more and more. And I'm not sure until you get a grip on that and start treating people better, for example, like uh, Amazon warehouse employees or, or Uber drivers or whoever, until you can make society better for everyone, you're not going to have a good civic experience, right? You're going to be infighting and you're going to be arguing and you're going to be feeling this uncertainty about the future that I think whether you're rich or not kind of plagues all of us right now. There's a huge, um, huge fear amongst everyone about what happens next, you know, whether that's weapons of war and, and um, kind of existential threats or, or uprisings or whatever it is. And I think that is, even if it doesn't, even if an Amazon worker's life doesn't affect you directly, that kind of treatment of people in general and the, the proliferation of that and the idea that that's okay in our society is hugely problematic. Yeah, and just to, 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 to give some more meat to that, to that sort of skeleton that you outlined for us, when Amazon was considering Toronto, Toronto made it on the short list of top three, I think, if maybe top five, maybe top three, I forget, places where um, Amazon was considering to build their next headquarters. And Toronto was the only city, and I'm very proud of our mayor for doing so, who refused to offer any tax incentives for Amazon to do that. And of course, our mayor got super criticized for the fact that, you know, we can't compete against the other cities and stuff like that. And, and his response was, and I'm not a big fan of our mayor per se, to be honest with you. But in this occasion, I was proud of him. And he said, we have so much to offer uh, that we are worthy of, of, of them being here, not for the tax rebates, but for who we are and what we stand for and what we provide and, and offer here as a community. Right. But all the other places offered, you know, tens, in some cases, hundreds of millions of incentives to this 
trillion dollar company which doesn't ever even pay tax right and and going back to my time as as a political science student i did my masters on sort of uh, armed conflict um, and uh, one of the biggest predictors from political science that we know is the best measure for revolution or for violent conflict for civil war is economic inequality that's a statistical fact it's like as far as back as you go all the way to the ancient greeks and to aristotle you know inequality is the best seed for revolution there's no doubt about that and just to give you an example of how because i did say we're not that different but there are some considerable differences here so toronto is the third largest metropolitan now in north america we surpassed chicago about it may, maybe a decade now. I don't know. We're about seven and a half million people, and by 2025 or 2028, we're supposed to be over 10. We're we're super fast growing. It's insane. Anyway, just to give you two examples. One example is we have currently right now the official statistics is about nine and a half thousand homeless people in a city of the size of Toronto, GTA. The same number of homeless people, as you know in your book, are in San Francisco which is a city about roughly nine times smaller than Toronto, right? And by the way, San Francisco has some of the richest people in the world, some of the richest tech companies in the world, the most tech, the most billionaires, the most everything. And it's always smarter and better than any of us. So how is it that we have this strange outcome? And another example to give you with uh, uh, crime, actually, we have had a terrible year in Toronto with with shootings and, and murders and, and crime and stuff. And we're going to break our record, probably getting close to about 90 or so murders for the whole year, right? As I said, we're bigger than Chicago. In Chicago, you have 90 murders or so in about a month, right? So, so, so that's the comparison we're talking about. And the question is, how is it that, that you have these different outcomes here in these societies, which are in so many ways so close, you know? So, and what kind of psychology or, or sociology gives rise to these kinds of outcomes? I think it's a really good question. It's funny you bring that up and I wish I could answer. Um, I don't know, I guess is the answer. Um, in terms of the the Canada America experience, um, but I would be really interested to hear about what kind of drives those numbers and those differences. I'm sure a lot of it is is legal. I'm not sure what the gun laws are in Canada. And I know. Well, we have legal gun ownership here, and there's like five or six million maybe uh, gun owners or something like that out of a population of 36 million. Uh, but the illegal guns usually come from south of the border because we have very strict uh, sort of, well, compared to the U.S. So we, we could do better. We used to have a, a gun registry where basically was a centralized re registry where anyone would buy a gun and, and th there was this database which then the conservative government basically killed. But but we still have very strict gun ownership laws, uh, and and it takes very little sort of deviation from from what expected out of you as a gun owner for you to lose those privileges. By the way, as opposed to uh, you know the U.S., um, so we do have lots of guns actually here. Yeah, 
I know hunting is a big thing. One of my best friends is Canadian and, and right. they have very, very different, but I've spoken like to them about it and they have very different ideas about what it means to own a gun. So you're, that sounds about, yeah, on, on par with what I understand right. as well. So let's, let's get back on topic here. Uh, however, uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the diversity situation because this is a criticism that I'm very often uh, mercilessly attacked for by my wife uh, because um, this is probably my greatest failure, right? So, and I, I fail on all fronts. So first of all, uh, maybe 10, if I'm very generous to myself, 15% of all of my interviewees so far have been women. Uh, and not only that, but 88% uh, of my audience is males. And now I, I have, quote, the best audience, end of quote, because, you know, I know that 90% uh, of them have a university degree. I know that 60% of them have a master's degree. I know that 43% of my audience has a PhD. I know that. They're super smart, they're super well-educated, they're higher-income people. Uh, uh, you can call them the elite, if you will. But I fail miserably on the female part, with only 12% of my audience being females. So, and, and that's perhaps, or is it, it's a question, a representation of sort of like a Silicon Valley, uh, the, the, the situation there. And what is it that I can do to improve this? And what is it that they can do to improve this? Yeah, first of all, I think it's worth saying that your audience is also really engaged. Like I've seen some of the questions they ask and that they're just really, really insightful and engaged in, in the process. I know one person, I think it was Cory Doctorow you had on and you had like six pages of questions for him. Right. People, it was amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. You, you do have a wonderful audience from what I can tell. Um, you know, I think part of it is that there's just, they always talk about whether the lack of diversity in tech is a pipeline or a cultural problem, right? Like whether enough women really end up there and are um, educated in STEM to, to get to the industry or whether or not the industry kind of loses them once they get there. And I think it's a really good question. I imagine it's a bit of both, but my understanding is it's more of a, of a cultural problem. And so by extension, I would imagine that the, there's just more, there's more men in Silicon Valley and there's you know, more men for you to, to interview on these topics who are, who are in that space. So to me, you know, that, that disparity of, of interviewees doesn't, that doesn't shock me. It, it makes perfect sense in a way. I think there are, there are definitely women doing really cool stuff, but it's not always, um, it's not always, you know, as a founder or. And it's um, even worse than that because they're not just men, they're white men usually. Right. Yeah, so it's not only non-diverse in terms of sex, but also race. Like, I like, and I, I am terrible in all of that. Like, I, I'm just not doing well here in, in with respect to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm happy to like give you some names of people I really respect and and who are doing amazing things, and whether or not they're, you know, I can think of tons of women, but also um, people of color and and people who might be like. Um, more diverse in, in different ways um, you might be interested in, in talking to and your, in, uh, your listeners might be interested in hearing. But um, I think a lot of it, you know, I wouldn't say that's anyone's fault. That's just, to my mind, that's kind of how the industry is self-selected, right? And they've been self-selecting like that since 1966 um, when they had kind of that, that 
<laughs> skill set definition from from some psychologists about what the industry needed, and that's that's really pervasive, and it, it still exists. And I think people are doing really good work to break down those stereotypes, but it's a process, and it's very you know it's going to be a very long time before there's there's equity in a lot of respects in tech. I think age is another one. Um, you've had obviously people of all different ages on your show, but um, within the, the actual industry and, and founders and engineers and stuff, it's a very fetishizing um, kind of youth culture. And it's really fascinating to see that, that it self-selects in all these different ways to kind of give um, one version of, of kind of a voice to this industry that then spreads all over the world. So yeah, if I could, if I could fix anything in tech, I think that would probably be where I went. Um, I went first and I know there's some really cool people working on like project include and um, in the UK there's, there's balanced boards and there's all these cool initiatives that I think will do really great things, but you're right. It is very much a problem, but I'll give you some names if you want. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to hear your suggestions, uh, but uh, we've been talking for about uh, 90 minutes now or approaching 90 minutes and I know your time is valuable. So let me just ask the last three or four questions here. Um, and and the first is 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 kind of a continuation of this. So we discuss these these kinds of issues that your book is focused about: uh, emotional and intelligence, um, uh, sort of ethical uh, threats and and ethical consequences of of the Silicon Valley big tech industry. Um, what can we do about it? And, and perhaps you can break your, your answer into two, and, and you kind of touched about diversity here, but maybe you can expand that by breaking it into two groups. What can people in Silicon Valley do about this? And what can outsiders from, let's say, Canada or the East Coast or wherever can do about this without being directly involved in the industry? Sure. Um, I think internally, the, the obvious kind of answer is to hire people with more divergent experiences and more divergent backgrounds. And the the idea behind that is that when, I mean, diverse companies are, are proven to be not only more profitable, but better at problem solving, right? And I think a lot of the reason Silicon Valley is having such a, a huge problem solving its problems is that it doesn't necessarily have the diversity of thought to do that kind of in-house. And I think prioritizing people with different educational backgrounds, different genders, different sexual orientations, different ethnicities, different everything would be really helpful because the more, the better mix of people you have from all of those different areas, the more ideas you're going to have and the better chance you're going to have of solving these problems. That just makes perfect kind of common sense, right? So I think internally that would be the thing um, I would prioritize because that would be the most natural way to increase emotional intelligence in the industry. It's also a good empathy exercise to be around people who are different from you, obviously. And I think um, it's pretty clear women have a lot better emotional intelligence on average than men, isn't it? Or I mean, I'm just like, I'm not, I, I'm speculating, but that's kind of my subjective observations. It's funny. There's a, it's, you can never tell, I think, whether those things are inborn or whether we're kind of maybe socialized to be like that in a lot of respects. Um, I've been socialized to be non-confrontational and very helpful and sweet and whatever, um, but I'm not sure I would have been like that naturally. I don't know. Um, but there is some research. You're right. There is definitely some research. I feel like it's out of Irvine, but I could be wrong, about um, empathy between differences and empathy between different genders. So there is that piece. Um, the other thing I think would be most helpful 
internally is to, to prioritize this as a value, right? To get some training in. And there are people who do emotional intelligence training. There's compassionate coding by women um, who, April Wenzel is the woman who runs it. And she goes in and, and tries to make companies more um, compassionate and, and does emotional intelligence training to try to get people to think about these things at kind of a, a ground level, basically, right? And think about how their products or how what they're coding impacts people down the line. Um, so there's definitely a training and education aspect to it. That's kind of part of my background as well. So I'm, I'm invested in, in that kind of side of it as well. So I think those two things would be really useful from the inside. In terms of what you can do as a consumer, I think pressure on these companies when they aren't acting in a way that you consider ethical and everyone's ethics are different. But if you don't like what you see, you can do different things. You can stop using that service. You can, you know, tweet about it. You can write a letter. You can write to your congressman. There's um, one of the congressmen from from Silicon Valley, Ro Khanna, is trying to redefine what um, what a monopoly is now, right? Because the the definition traditionally had to do with with price setting, but now there's all these other harms that we think about when we think about monopolies that that have to do with social harms and um, job loss and things like that. So. Lack of competition. Your, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so supporting politicians and lawmakers and and helping them be educated and know that these things are important. I think again, like Andrew Yang is doing a lot uh, towards that end, and I know Elizabeth Warren is also um, talking a lot about and Amy Klobuchar about breaking up tech companies and monopolies and stuff. So there's a lot that's happening. I think there's a lot of ways you can make your voice heard, whether you're you know into politics or tweeting or marches or whatever it may be there's lots of things you can do fantastic and let me just ask you and we, we're totally running out of time is it okay if i keep you for another seven or eight minutes yeah 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 totally yeah okay Thank you, because I, I want to talk to you a little bit about Instagram here, um, because uh, you said you had a lot of uh, research done on the specific companies themselves that you never had the chance to put into the book. And, mm -hmm. and I'm particularly interested in Instagram for two reasons. One is personal, the other is kind of academic. So academically speaking, I've read a lot of studies that Instagram is the most depressing and depressed platform uh, there is. And personally, my observations on that is twofold. So first of all, we had a, a not a close friend, but a good acquaintance of ours who committed suicide uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, um, who was probably about 33-year-old ma uh, young man, professional and everything. I never knew. Uh, he was a big fan of my podcast. Uh, we we're actually supposed to go out together for dinner or something. I thought I told him I'm going to take him out, but then I had to cancel because something happened. I had to travel to Europe, and and then by the time I I came back, uh, you know, I had other responsibilities. By the time I get this on my list to do, he killed himself, and I I felt so bad uh, that like I never knew he's depressed or anything like that. Uh, but he was a, an Instagram user, very serious Instagram user. And then a cousin of my wife's uh, attempted suicide, and she's the kind of obsessive Instagrammer who starts her morning on her toilet bowl with a selfie video. Imagine this, sitting on her toilet bowl on Instagram, right? That's her like, good morning, I'm, and like, and she attempted to commit suicide. And I think in her case, maybe it was more like sort of like a, 
call for attention and stuff like that. But but still, those are my sort of anecdotal, subjective pieces of evidence that I have. And and tell me a little about this. Am I correct to claim that it's the most depressing and depressed platform? Yeah, that is the research I've seen as well. It is the worst for your mental health. Um, and it's, it differs by gender and it differs by age. It is particularly dangerous, I would say, almost for teenage women, teenage girls. Um, those years are very difficult anyway. And to have your you know self-esteem threatened on a daily basis by images of perfection that aren't even real is, is hugely damaging. But it's hard for all of us um, for, for different reasons too. And I'm really sorry to hear um, about your, your friend and, and colleague or acquaintance. Um, I had something similar happen as well. And I, I was wondering if that played any role at all, um, which is, you know, if nothing else, interesting that that's something that you think about almost immediately now is whether or not social media um, had a hand in something like that. It's one of your first thoughts. Um, and it's, I know they're aware of it. I know they're aware of the research. They must be. They're getting supposedly rid of likes. I haven't seen it yet. I still have Instagram um, and I can still see likes. So I don't know if if that's something that is meant to be rolled out soon, but they're definitely aware of the problem. And it's really, you know, it's a great app in a lot of ways. Um, I have friends all over the world and I get to see their lives, um, you know, kind of play out and their babies grow up and let me grab this one thought here, though, because you said that you still have Instagram. And, you know, I deleted mine about a year and a half ago, uh, you know, wh which was my choice. I I'm not pushing it on others. But given the book that you've written and given everything that you know for psychology, for the implications of using those apps, like how do you square that with you using the app yourself? Yeah, so I have a very kind of easy response, which is uh, my publishers were quite keen for me to have a social media presence. I was never on Twitter before. Yeah. Um, and I got on a couple months ago before the book came out because I kind of felt like I had to. Um, I saw that, And they yeah. didn't pressure me. They didn't say, you you know, you absolutely have to. But one of the questions when you send in a book proposal is, what's your following like? Like, how many, how many do yeah. you have? And Instagram was actually my biggest. I had about 10,000 followers. And... Um, and so I, I felt compelled to keep it and it's a professional one and I don't spend a lot of time on it, but um, it's a really good question. I think in a lot of ways you kind of have to balance um, different kinds of connection and, and what you want to get out of it. You know, I met you because um, in part someone kind of connected us on Twitter or uh, cited another podcast that I was on and, and we connected, which has been really great. So there is, I can see the benefit in all these things. I just think the, the business model of them is so deeply flawed and the, the way they go about prioritizing and understanding men mental health is also really, really just not okay. Like there need to be more social scientists and philosophers and um, you know psychologists in these companies to, to help understand how it's affecting societies and people's well-being and up until recently there hasn't been any of that and it's still so deeply lacking that that I'm scared that it it won't get better anytime soon and that reminds me a little bit on a side note that I actually owe an apology because it was uh, absolutely you just reminded me it was a uh, a podcast fan of mine who on Twitter suggested that I interview you and I'm so terrible right now and I, I do get a lot of messages on Twitter sometimes but I apologize but I forget their name but I owe them 
a lot of gratitude because thanks to them, thanks to that very proactive uh, fan of the podcast in the blog, I got to read your fantastic book and to interview you today. Uh, so I apologize to them for not remembering their Twitter handle or their name. <laughs> yeah, I was really grateful as well. And it was one of the, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter either. Part of it really freaks me out, but um, part of it's really, really nice and people can be really kind. And, and you definitely see that I think on every platform, you know, you see supportive people and then you see people who are just there to maybe argue or make other people miserable or whatever, you know, they're feeling inside kind of gets constellated in their um, digital kind of avatar. But um, yeah, I was really grateful for that as well. And I've had some really cool um, things come up because of these, these platforms. So I don't think they're in, you know, inherently bad by any means. I'm not like an anti-technology person. I just think the way you develop stuff and how you think about it and, and your values that go into it are really important and not giving nearly enough space right now. But I also did notice that you're like very light Twitter user and that you only recently started your handle there. And and I also concluded, you you know, I, I never knew what's happening behind the curtain, but I also concluded that it may have to do something with your book publication because I've talked to a few publishers too and, and they want to, you know, see sort of my followership, my, my email list, my newsletter, subscriber numbers, my followers on everywhere. And actually... Uh, one of the things I had maybe a thousand only on on Instagram when I deleted my account, but but one uh, agent was telling me you just diminish your chance of actually uh, having a publisher be interested in your book by deleting your account. That's a total loss because next time you have to start from zero, right? Yeah, it's hard not to pay attention to. I try to not get wrapped up in it. I you know, the things that matter to me are things like this conversation, which has been so lovely. I just got to go to Dallas and do a talk last week and, and meet some really interesting people in the, in the space and, and see what they're doing. So things like that and, you know, the outcome of some of the connections that you make because of technology can be great. But I try to focus on, on kind of the human element and, and the connections that, that you can have because of it. And speaking of the human element, uh, you're the co-founder of something called the Center for Technology Awareness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so I started uh, CTA when I was in London. So it's a London-based nonprofit. And it started in, well, I informally started it in 2012 and formally started it in 2013. But it's basically kind of an educational and awareness um, platform. And we give education to high schools and to middle schools and sometimes to, to little kids in primary school as well about digital health and, and cyberbullying and online etiquette and safety. So it started out as kind of a, a way to help people understand the changes that were happening around them, mostly children. Uh, we've done some training for, for adults and digital health as well. Uh, and then my co-founder has his PhD in the mental health effects of technology. So he is hugely um, you know, well-versed in, in that subject area and really, um, really helpful there. And then I've done, because of it, so many conferences, like I can't even remember them all, but they all have slightly like a different bent and they've been really fun just to kind of spread the word. So it has been really an awareness kind of um, oriented organization. I still spend a bit of time on it. I would say probably about 20, 25% of my time. Um, but I've, I've transitioned away from it a, a bit after returning to the States last year and then writing the book and taking some time off for that. But yeah, it's very much still alive and well if anyone needs educational resources or anything like that. 
And that reminds me, by the way, that because you said uh, something to the effect of uh, everyone is at disadvantage or something, I forget what you exactly said, but uh, my my response to that was like, no, I actually feel that I'm very kind of well protected because uh, I'm not a teenager. I'm not a child. I think that both teenagers and children are the most vulnerable right now because they're the least equipped to deal with this. Uh, and also I feel like um, since you mentioned that sort of uh, fake world of perfection that they see, especially on platforms like uh, Instagram, uh, you know, I, I don't feel particularly uh, conscious about the fact that I'm bold or or anything like that. Uh, I don't have like too much concern about my masculinity or anything like that. But again, that comes from the emotional stability that I get from my wife uh, and my partnership with her. Um, and, and and other things like that, which are kind of the, the 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 foundation for emotional stability and intelligence, which then then allows me to be able to take those things a lot uh, more in a stride rather than kids and teenagers today who are insecure and, and ill-equipped to deal with this kind of world. Yeah, and I think you're right. It is it is those things that really kind of prop you up and give you strength, like community and relationships and and meaning and kind of knowing and having a sense of who you are and that's part of i think that kind of uh distancing of of the inner self from the external world which has this kind of pronounced importance now right whether it's like your your digital persona or your followers or or whatever it is people i think are are very oriented towards different things that than the things that actually would make them happy right and and science tells us what makes us happy, and it is things like you know relationships and and intimacy and connection and and meaning and things like that. And that's not what we're that's not what's pushed with these platforms in any way, shape, or form. Right? Yeah, actually, we know as you point out in your book, and Yuval Harari points out in his book that we are as unhappy as we've ever been, probably the most unhappy as we've ever been, and that's best seen perhaps with the in the skyrocketing of not only depression but suicides. Um, so and the other thing that you actually mention in your book is the best predictor for longevity is uh, sort of the strength of our personal relationships, uh, personal and social relationships, family, you know, friendship, and you know, our romantic relationships and so on. They're the best predictor for longevity. Yeah. It's so true. And it's so sad to see those change. Um, and I like flatten, I think the flattening of friendships is a really interesting concept and how friendships have changed over the last 10 years. And the kind of, I think one of the surgeon generals said that isolation was the, the biggest um, mental health or threat to, to health in general um, of the next kind of decade or so. And I know the World Health Organization kind of highlights depression as, as the key indicator of health that'll be most important in the next kind of 10 years or so. And it really does, it makes you wonder like how much, and I, there's so many studies to kind of, you know, show a causal relationship, how much of it has to do with technology. And I would say, you know, quite a bit. Right, and that's the dichotomy and paradox, ironic paradox in technology, perhaps, is that, for example, Facebook promises to bring us together uh, and to have friends, and yet the biggest threat to friends uh, to, to Facebook is our real-life friends. So they want us to not spend time with or ignore our real-life 
friends when we are with them and instead got on the get on their platform to sort of you know socialize with our facebook fake friends let's call it so yeah, i think uh, who says it but it's not a threat to humanity right like friendship has never been like an existential threat we've always done that pretty well and now we're doing it less well <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay. well katie uh, we've been talking to an hour uh, for about an hour and 40 minutes. So let me ask you, what do you want to take away most important message that our viewers and listeners would take away from this conversation with you today? You know, I think all of this is, is starts with the individual, right? So the more all of us, not just people in tech, but anyone can focus on psychological health in their own life, whether it's getting away from these platforms or whatever makes their life kind of have feel better and more meaningful and more connected. I think that's would be, you know, lovely. And then at a larger level, I think the psychological health of organizations, any way we can improve those, I think would go a tremendous way towards towards fixing a lot of the problems that we see. Uh, and and where can people find more about you and your work? Sure. Um, so the easiest place is probably katiecook.net and it's Katie with a Y. Spelled the funny way. Fantastic. Katie Cook, thank you very much for being with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.